Today we have a delightful treat for you, a conversation with Jan Sultan. Jan is a legend, an elder, and a sage in the Rolfing structural integration community. Jan Sultan's initial encounter with Ida Rolf was in 1967 as her client. In 1969, Jan trained under her, and after having assisted several classes, was invited by Dr. Rolf to become an instructor in 1975. After further apprenticeship, Dr. Rolf invited him to take on the advanced teaching. Jan currently teaches basic trainings, continuing education, and advanced trainings for the Dr. Ida P. Rolf Institute of Structural Integration, based in Boulder, Colorado. He feels strongly that his responsibility as an instructor goes beyond simply passing on what he was taught to include the refinement and coherent development of the ideas and methodology taught by Ida Rolf. We're grateful for Jan's time, history, and knowledge, and are excited to share this conversation with you. And now, enough of this intro. Here is Jan Sultan. I'm here. Hi. Well, we wanted to thank you for taking time for talking with us. And You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. And um, as we've been having conversations in in the past about Rolfing's reputation of being painful, I would love to hear more about that. And seeing that you trained with Ida and you were around from, from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, I just had a conversation with Neil Powers the other day, and uh, we were in the same advanced training together. <laughs> or no, he was in basic training, and I was assisting Ida for the first time, actually, the way that worked. But, you know, we were both like really old timers, you know. Mm -hmm. I should start by saying, you know, that when I originally got Rolfed, I had never had therapeutic touch on me in my life. I'd never had a chiropractic adjustment. I'd never had a massage. Uh, I had been to a medical doctor if I were injured, but otherwise I had no experience with what I was getting into. And, uh, and I was also not an educated guy. I went from high school into the workforce. So I didn't have a, I didn't have a, uh, an, a university training. So I was pretty virgin that first time and uh, and my girlfriend at the time said hey this this old woman comes to Esalen and does treatments you should check it out and so I went and I stood in front of Rolf she was at the dining table at Esalen Institute and I said I waited kind of hung back until I could see that she was sort of done with her meal she pushed her plate away and I came up and I introduced myself and I said hey I'm interested in your work I've heard you know that it's really beneficial and she looked over at me and she looked me from the floor to my eyes, back down again, back up again. And then, oh, she said, you know, oh, I said, I'd hope for some help with my knees. And she said, well, of course your knees hurt. Look at your pelvis. <laughs> and so that was like the beginning of my relationship with Rolf. And it really never changed. You know, it was like you couldn't say anything but that she would. She would one-up you, and, 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 and it was usually funny, but also poignant, you know, like right on it. So uh, I had my first session, and at the end of it, I thought, 
boy, that was pretty intense. Uh, and I really had to, you know, like almost disincorporate <laughs> to let her do it just to not twitch. And, uh, I thought, well, uh, I left, I left the studio. I got tr my first treatment at the Esalen bathhouse. And, uh, I thought, well, I don't have to do that twice. And I went along my merry way. And about three days later, my whole upper lungs opened with a great series of cracks and pops. And I was getting more breath than I had gotten maybe in my life. And I was even a little bit dizzy from the oxygen. And then I paused and I went, oh, that's from the rolfing. Oh, I have to go back. <laughs> So did I, was she doing, was she working with your breath and not your knee? She didn't touch my knees. She went right, she right for my rib cage, right for my breathing, landed on me, you know, like say like a she bear, you know, <laughs> and just started pulling open all this fascia in here and, you know, working on my axilla, both sides. And then she put me on my side and worked on my hip joint and did my hamstrings raked my back and she said, okay, that's it. We were in that room for, I'll bet you no more than 40 minutes, maybe 45. And it was over. And, uh, you know, next time I worked, I went, she worked on my legs. She did my feet. She did my knees, but I'll tell you, I don't ever, I don't think we ever talked about my knees again. Uh, I had lots of other things to think about. And in retrospect, my knees stopped hurting. And at the time, I was I was uh, in construction, and I was doing a fair amount of wheelbarrow work, moving materials up and down a pretty steep hill. And so it was somewhat occupationally related. I didn't really have bad knees. I just had my knees were just really sore from what I was doing. And so I felt better. Uh, but... You know, I went through that first nine series with her, um, and in and what I learned later was it was a recipe. I didn't know it was a recipe when I was going through it. I didn't know that it was a formulistic approach that had, you know, designated uh, sessions that were done at each level. So I finished nine, and Ida went off to Japan. I remember she would come and come and go from Esalen. So my treatments were spaced out over probably five or six months at that point. And then she went to Japan and Peter Melkier had just graduated from his basic training. So Peter did session nine and 10 with me because it was going to be, you know, a month or two before Rolf was back at Esalen. And so Peter finished it up. And then I, I said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do this. I want to learn this. Uh, so I petitioned Ida when she came back. I said, hey, I'd like to study with you. And she rolled her eyes. And she said, how could you, you have no education. You're a blue collar man. What are you going to do with work like this? Then I sort of shrugged and I said, what would you like me to do? And she said, well, at least get a massage license so you can legally touch people and write me a paper on five systems of the body and how they interact so I know if you can think. And so <laughs> I went, <laughs> I was living in Big Sur. I went down to L.A. I went to the Pomona School of Massage, old 
blue-haired ladies doing effleurage and deportment, and then came back, got my California massage license, wrote her darn paper, and the next time I saw her was a few months later, and I came with the paper and the, <laughs> and the diploma and said, I'm ready to go. So away we went. And the rest, I say, is kind of history. You know, I entered her training. I went through the training. Peter and I was lucky because we were around Big Sur and there was a residential program at Esalen. So it was part of the residential program that they would receive a 10 series of rolfing as part of their time, which was, I think, a two and a half month or three month uh, rotation doing gestalt therapy and Tai Chi and all this kind of brand new humanistic stuff. And uh, so Peter and I decided we would alternate sessions. So I would do one, he'd do two, back and forth. And we had about, I'm going to say 15 or 18 people that we took through a 10 series, but going back and forth. And Peter and I would talk about each client at, in between. Well, what'd you see? And how did that second hour look to you? And boom, boom, boom. Well, it was pretty clear to me that Peter's touch was really different than mine. He, from the very beginning, he had a much more, I want to say a much more patient touch than I did. And I was trying to translate what I had felt from Ida Rolf into my own work. You know, it's kind of, this is how I experienced it. This is how I think it should be done. Well, in that case, you know, I really became one of Ida's old time, original you know, deep connective tissue, bony edges, uh, fascial differentiation, tendon sheaths, pick them, pick them open until they glide, and really uh, worked in the very classic style of, of early rolfing. And at the end of the basic class, she said it this way. She said, look, there's probably more than one way to do this. But what I want you to do is stick to my way until you think you know what you're doing. And then I will know that you're rolfing, that you learned rolfing. And I thought, okay, well, that's a reasonable uh, contract, you know, because the only other experience I had at that point was Swedish massage and Peter Melkier's hands. Plus, now I had some experience, you know. Um, so anyway... I went to New Mexico. I was the only rolfer for a thousand miles in any direction. <laughs> and I was like, I, so I just kind of opened shop. And everybody I worked on got real rolfing, as I call it. You know, that particular, you know, straight fingers and stretching with the back of the fist and hamstrings and all of the things that are sort of characteristic of what I now think is old school rolfing. Dan, do you mind um, if we back up for a second? While you're going through your training with Ida, what in the explanation of why going with such a deep pressure, what was the therapeutic application of that she defined? Well, her theory was it had to do with the, the uh, chemical nature of collagen. And she said a collagen is a colloid which means it's a, a fluid with, with elements in suspension as opposed to a homogeneous uh, structure. So she said, if you excite a collagen, the molecules move faster and you get more fluidity. And if you withdraw energy moving it toward colder, then the collagen tends to gel and get thicker and stiffer. 
So first explanation was that the direct pressure and sort of almost the heat would render the collagen more fluid. We're not sure at this point whether that's actually what's happening, but that was her, that was her original explanation. And the other half was that she said, we have innate, um, now this is my language, not Rolf, I'm not quoting her, but we have innate adaptive capacity that when we get injured, we go through an adaptive process and we rebalance. And although the healing may happen, Sometimes the way we come back together isn't the same way we went into the injury. Maybe there's some changes. And that over the period of someone's life, they may have gone through many of these adaptations. And early injuries get adapted and stable, and then a new one comes in, and the process has to start over, often reactivating the older adaptations and trying to get them to move on. So there's that. And the other is that because the body is a dynamic system, it tries to distribute the impact of an injury through as much of the system as it can so that it doesn't stay localized because that, then that allows it to stay more mobile. And uh, so based on these theoretical foundations, what she, what she said was Rolfing uses the same adaptive mechanisms that we use when we have an injury but we use those mechanisms to move people toward a higher level of order. And then I began to think, oh, I mean, this is along the road by then, but I started to think that Rolfing was actually a highly organized stressor and that like a stressor that was random, you know, fall off your bicycle, you know, plant on a sidewalk, there's an adaptive process that happens where you gradually put yourself back together, but you might notice you're not quite as good. It's that same mechanism of adaptation that she wanted to use by doing this deep systematic manipulation, which was to excite an adaptive response and a fluidity that you could use to move someone toward a better place. So that was, I think that was the sort of the root logic of it. And it held together logically. And I have to say that whether it was fully theoretically correct, we sure got our results. And uh, one of the things early on when Ida was coming to Esalen, and forgive me if I call her Ida and not Dr. Rolf every time, um, I know she'll forgive me, uh, was when, when Ida came to Esalen, she worked on Fritz Pearls a few times because Fritz was having some angina which is a, you know, a contraction of some of the coronary arteries that was painful. And uh, so Ida worked on Fritz and his angina got better. But after a while, she, and she was doing a 10 series on him. After a while, he said, oh, my God, everybody who goes through Gestalt therapy should be getting Rolfed in order to release the body memories from the psychological patterning. And, uh, you know, at this moment, Rolf and the human potential movement went boom and came together. And Ida had said, I'd heard her say that in her original formulation, she developed this more of an orthopedic adjunct. And only farther along, and this is prior to Fritz, farther along, she began to realize that when people got 
processed, as she called it, they not only changed how they stood and moved, but they also changed how they felt. And so they would report that some of their characteristic emotional habitus had yielded into some fluidity so that they could actually reprogram how they're behaving. And uh, so when Fritz saw this arrive, uh, you know, the only other behavioral behavioral body intervention that was around then was Reich's work, Wilhelm Reich. And that can, you know, that was a, you know, Reich was also a student of Sigmund Freud, like Fritz Perls. And Perls saw, oh, some of the same thing that Reich was trying for, where he saw that Rolf was getting to, only Rolf wasn't gunning for emotional release. It was a byproduct of what she was doing. It wasn't the object of the exercise. So anyway, um, that's when, when, uh, when uh, Peter and I got the Esalen residents who were also all going through Gestalt therapy and started adding it to their, uh, their program at Esalen. And sure enough, I mean, these people were changing dramatically, but they were, they had gone to an immersion program to, you know, and, and mind you, this is probably early sixties. So there was a lot of revolutionary energy in a sense. We were coming out of the fifties. We were, this is the post-war uh, prosperity starting to show up and the exploration about, what we called the human potential, you know, like what's going on here with us. Um, so I felt in, in retrospect, I feel really lucky, you know, that I got to work with Fritz Perls. I got to work with Ida Rolf and I got to see this thing, how it popped open. Now uh, there was also a lot of people, uh, a metaphysical exploration going on during that time. Alan Watts came to Esalen. He was teaching meditation. Uh, there were a lot of people who were sitting different kinds of meditation. There was a Chilean mystic named Oscar Echazo, and a lot of the people went off to work with him in Chile. And when they came back, they were revolutionized, and those people were still getting rolfed. Um, but at that point, in terms of rolfing's touch, it was done the way that I learned how to do it. And that whole first generation of us, I would say Peter probably had the lightest touch, but he sometimes put his elbow in, you know, and made you have to endure, uh, you know, a certain amount of pressure in order to get something moving. So but that kind of brings into how so it's unfortunate how Rolfing has a reputation of being painful because clearly, as you've been describing it, there's way more things that go on in the process than just enduring a stressor. And with Peter, you're talking about how he might have had a lighter touch that Rolfing is evoking great change in the body. And there's also this element of a broad spectrum of touch. Sure, maybe Rolfing's maybe on a little bit of the, the heavier handed, but it's not bear down and take it. It... Well, it wasn't, it wasn't deep pressure without meaning. It wasn't like deep tissue massage, you know, where you just go in and we would look at people walk and we would see their 
postural patterning and the work was aimed to try to bring people into what she called a better um, better relationship of the parts of the body so if someone had a compressed rib cage and their knees were locked and their pelvis was anterior tilted she'd say get that guy's pelvis on top of his legs so it was aimed at creating better spatial organization better continuity of tone and better uh, connection of, of the segments around the whole movement process so it wasn't just deep pressure. It was very specific. And, you know, people came back and they sent their relatives and, and it was really, you know, it was a very viable kind of approach. Lots of people didn't go through psychological changes. But I, we had athletes, you know, who would come and they wanted, you know, they wanted to perform better, breathe better, um, you know, we get runners moving faster by getting the, the, you know, the extension at the hip joint working better. So, yeah, it wasn't, it was definitely not one size fits all, even though you could have said that, you know, uh, if you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, uh, oh, sorry, Andrew. No, no, go on, go on, Nikki, I'll get um, uh, Well, and then you touching on also, I think the very beautiful thing of Rolfing, is that you implement a, a change and then you have the client get off the table and walk and experience it. So there's a, this dance of feeling into your body with the help of the, the rolfer and then getting off the table and taking it into movement and getting to own it for yourself. Rolf, you, Rolf always said, rolfing is movement, is, is manipulation and education. And if you leave out education, well, then you're no better than a chiropractor. Her son was a chiropractor, but, you know, that was the, kind of an in-joke. So if, um, if I can ask, without too much speculation, why, why was Peter's touch – why do you think Peter's touch was lighter, and do you think – I, it was something that Ida was maybe pushing him towards, or was she pushing him to be harder? Or no, it, it was just uh, it was just his nature, honestly. You know mm-hmm. that he's a. Uh, we always used to say Peter's the poet. You know his his touch was poetic, and he was very patient. Um, I was a you know I was a sailor and a and a you know a tradesman. And I think my touch simply reflected that, you know, that I wanted to deal with the material of the body differently. Hmm. And I think Peter maybe inherently had a feeling about the energetics that was his gift, um, you know. Um, and at that time, Emmett Hutchins was in our circle. And Emmett's touch was way firmer than mine. And so you could have said, here's Emmett, here's Jan, and here's Peter. And we represented that spectrum of touch that we now, is part of an inherent part of the work at this point. Um, But I had a lot of work from Emmett, and I knew what it meant, and it was therapeutically beneficial. And I had to endure it to a certain extent. Um, 
And when I got treated by Peter, it was subtle and it was also on point. And I also felt like better organized when he got done with me. Um, and to come back to Nikki's question, um, you know, so, so we educated people. We'd watch them move before we, the treatment. Afterward, we'd let them walk around the room. You might ask someone to feel the way the, their feet were, were load-bearing as they walked. Um, notice where your eyes are in the room. Are you looking at the floor in front of you? Or, you know, and someone would say, oh, no, I'm looking higher up. You know, my head position has shifted. And uh, people reported on breathing, breathing, breathing all the time. And then a lot of the cultural uh, body patterning that we would assume, like if you think about a military posture, when they say stand up straight, a lot of people put their shoulders back and shorten their back and bring their ribs up, tuck their chin in. But that's not straight um, organically. That's straight obediently. And uh, we were always we were always taught to look at those culturally based patterns and work to re-educate people to allow their bodies to be more oh the shape and the organization that they were inherently capable of thank you for the sharing all that um so i'm curious to hear a little bit more about why do you think rolfing, besides maybe it just being sensationalized, why rolfing has this reputation of being painful, considering that there's so much more to it than just the, the high pressure? Well, for one thing, it was painful. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't myth. It was true. Now, you know, it wasn't painful from end to end, but it definitely had painful moments because you're touching into the same uh, receptors that are there to tell you that things are changing when you just smacked your elbow on something. And then when the rolfer puts their finger in there, they're talking to the same nerve endings. The difference is the pain of that is people would say it over and over. That's a good pain. That's the difference. And being, you know, the pain of a ding or an injury and the pain of being moved toward order share neurology. And so there is always this. And Rolf used to say, people love to complain about how much you hurt them, but you hardly ever hear them say how much good you did them. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, so maybe, you know, maybe she was right. You know, people like to whine. Oh my God, I endured a rolfing session, you know, um, but fact is, I think the reputation was well-earned. I was one of those guys, so I can say, yeah. But parenthetically, or when I, uh, maybe a year, a little more than a year after I finished my training with Ida, I moved from California to northern New Mexico, and I lived north of Santa Fe. And... And nobody had ever heard of rolfing. We were, you know, like the, the left coast was where all that stuff happened, as Rush Limbaugh says. Uh, and, you know, so I, here I was, you know, my, my friend said, how come you stand so straight? <laughs> I don't 
don't stand straight. I am straight. You know, I'm not posturing. I, you know, I was, I was given room to stand like this, you know, to, to be upright and elegant in a way. And, uh, but that's, that's foundation to say that when I moved to Northern New Mexico, a, nobody had heard of Rolfing. B, who came, you know, he's the guy that works on people was what they would say. You know, that go. So I saw people who'd hurt their backs. I'd saw people who'd come from the, you know, from cutting firewood and loading pickup trucks. And then, oh, you know, their back was out and they'd come in. They're all crooked. And it was either see a guy like me who lived in the in the area or go to a chiropractor. There was nobody else doing structural work at the time. There was a good old boy in Santa Fe who did massage, but that was about it. So right away, I found myself back in the orthopedic application. And it was not lost on me, you know, that as soon as I left the matrix of Esalen and the human potential and the growth and the spiritual, psycho-spiritual, you know, evolutions, here were ordinary people with their bodies in trouble, sprung one way or another. I remember this mother brought a baby to me that had a rather difficult birth, home birth. And I'm telling you, this kid's head was like cranked into her like this. And she couldn't lift this little baby. This is six week old kid could not get her head up. And the mother brought the kid to me and, can you help with this? And I looked at that baby and I just thought, oh, if there's a Jesus, get here now. <laughs> so I got the little baby in my arms and I put my fingers under the occiput and I started feeling. And sure enough, I could feel the neck was just, whoa, like as if the neck was looking 15 degrees to one side. And of course, the head was just like that. So I just began to tinker with the cranium and tinker with the bodies, with the thorax, you know, and work back and back and blah, 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 blah. And then I felt it unwrap and lengthen. And I thought, stop now. So I gave the kid back. I told her, let me know in a couple of days how that is. Well, the kid put her head on that night. I, this kid is now 50 years old <laughs> and she still comes to see me once in a while. She's had a couple of kids and, uh, you know, we both laugh, you know, like she was, she was like the youngest person I'd ever touched. I didn't know anything about, I didn't know anything about anything, but I just took the tools that I'd been given and took a hold of that baby. And I was gentle as gentle as, you know, it couldn't have been sweeter touched because this is a newborn, uh, very high plasticity, you know, and very soft. And by the same token, I was getting old people, you know, somebody's grandma would fall down in the garden, you know, and they'd bring grandma over in a pickup truck, you know, <laughs> like, okay, I'll try and do this. So I was challenged early to work outside the recipe and also to vary the quality of my touch based on who I was touching. And I know that many of the early Rolfers felt like if you aren't Rolfing the way Rolf said, you're not Rolfing at all. And I never have been like adamant about that because I know we really, the individual we're touching is going to determine a lot about how readily they change. 
at what depth can you get their adaptive mechanisms to, to light up and go into that state where there's a certain amount of plasticity where there could be renegotiation. So I think those stories really beautifully illuminate the, the, the brilliance of the Rolfing in that we're not, that again, I'm, I know I'm harping on the reputation of pain and I'm sure there are others, but the, the attempt for the listeners to really understand that Rolfing's way more than that. And you're taught really how to organize and you know, organize a body and meeting them where they're, where they're at. And, you know, you, for sure there's times and place for to lean in and maybe get that high pressure. But then there's what you're, the, the story you shared about the baby. Clearly you're not leaning into the baby's tissue, but you're following a sense of reorganization that I, in my training, I mean, my biggest takeaway was looking at the body and looking how to create change off of the principles and not so much about how heavy pressure I'm going to be in a certain part of the body. It's a, it's a very delicate bit, but what, what Rolf used to say is, look, this is education below the mind. This is education in the domain of sensation. So we're not, we're not talking at people to tell them how to feel, how to do. Rather, we're touching down into them and feeling the strain patterns and leaning into those strain patterns until the body begins to re-pattern. That's the point. And if you only work on a part, you don't get that. You know, somebody comes in with a bad knee, you work on the knee, you don't get the rolfing effect. But one of the things that I came to understand is that what made rolfing rolfing was that it worked on multiple joints all the time. So if I was working on an ankle and I'm not also paying attention to the knee and the hip, I'm not rolfing. Uh, I might not have to go lean on the hip, but if I ignore the hip, I'm, I'm back in that working on the parts. Uh, what we used to sometimes, uh, you know, say, oh, you're doing fix-it work. But a, a rolfer can do fix-it work because they work across segments. They work multiple joints. They always work relationships. They don't work on parts. So there's all that. So there's a bit more of this history I want to bring forward. So this is, you know, I pretty much, I mean, if Rolf said do it my way for the first five years or until you think you know what you're doing, it implied to me that at some point you'd know what you were doing. And I was kind of grateful for that. <laughs> I thought, you know, because Rolf was, was like my, my God when it came to body work. You know, I mean, I, what she said was gospel and I did that her way. So at the, you know, when I was in my, I came back to uh, do my advanced training probably four and a half, five years after I'd been through basic class. Back to Big Sur. And we spent six weeks in that class, 24 days, four days a week. You know, and it was rough because she, I mean, these, this gang, I mean, there must have been 12 or 14 of us in that advanced class. It was me and Peter and Emmett and Al Drucker and God knows, uh, Bill Schutz and Seymour Carter and just a pile of 
Giovanna D'Angelo and Judith Aston was there. And, and so she was trying to take this body of pretty anarchistic individuals, you know, very individuated people and teach them the next level of rolfing. And so she had a new formula that she developed, which was a four series. And I won't go into the details of it, but this is me. I thought, well, if the one through 10 is a pretty generalized pattern that you can put most anybody through and get good results, I think the advanced training should become more and more client-centered rather than formulistic. You know, that I don't, you come for a third session, I know what I'm going to do. I look at my appointment book. Oh, this is Nikki's third hour. I'm putting you on your side. I'm going to do a classic third hour. But if you come for the, you know, you come post 10 and you say, well, I want to get some more work and I've got hitches here and I'm working well over here. I don't have, I don't have a handbook for you. I have to look at you and I have to use the tools that I have to try to do the next right thing for you. So my own orientation, I began to have friction with Ida Rolf at this point. There was a, I want to say that there was a grinding edge. And uh, I had learned with Ida Rolf to keep my mouth shut. Because if you picked, if you picked a fight with her, you were going to lose. <laughs> You know, how do you win? She's got white hair and a rose in her hair and a beautiful brooch. And you do all the respect in the world, you know. So you couldn't say, oh, I, don't, I don't agree with you. So you learn to be quiet, take it in, have your own thoughts. We'd sometimes talk, you know, go out after class and have wine and, and sit on the Esalen patio, you know, and talk about class and work. But... um. Then into this matrix, probably in 82, I'm thinking, uh, the f I was on the faculty by then. I was on the faculty by the time I'd been working six, seven years. Ida called me out to assist a training. I came, went through a, a basic training with her. Then we did a combined basic and advanced where she, where she would meet with all the practitioners in the morning and lecture. And then the basic would go over there and they would do their one through 10 and the advanced would go over here and they'd do their one through four. So I was her, I was her assistant and I go between in those classes and she was training me to be an instructor. So first came uh, Peter and Emmett and then me and then Salveson, Jim Asher. Those were her original teaching crew. And Asher, I got to say, had the best hands among us. He was, he had a gift that was something to feel touched by Jim and to feel how immediate the body would know where to go. He was like, you know, he was like the, uh, he was like the horse whisperer when it came to <laughs> touching people. <laughs> and he was an odd guy, but man, did he have hands. Anyway, I digress. In 82 or 83, we had John Upledger come to the Rolfing faculty and give us a five-day class in craniosacral therapy. And he knew what we did. One of our 
practitioners, Charlie Swenson, had gone, taken multiple classes with the Upledger Institute and became one of their teachers. And he facilitated John Upledger coming to meet the Rolfing teachers. Emmett decided he did not want to learn this, so he boycotted the class. All the rest of us were there. Uh, and at that point, it was, I don't know, it doesn't matter who was there, but only Emmett didn't come. And Upledger basically looked at us and said, you guys don't understand that there is a spectrum of touch from gross to esoteric and that largely Rolfing falls on the gross end of the spectrum. And he said, I don't mean gross like ugly. I mean gross like dense, firm, solid. And at the other end, eventually you start working with rhythmic uh, patterns in the body. And then if you go a little further, you're actually off the body. But, it, but you're in the rhythms and then you're in the field of the energy and the way the body feels. And for me, it was like, it was like, oh, thank God. I am being told this. I'm being given permission. I learned to feel the cranium and feel the cranial, you know, the, the expansion and retraction of the movement of the cranial fluid and the movement of the sacrum and how the body opens on, on flexion, cranial flexion and, and moves like this on extension. And, and then all of a sudden, all these postural patterns that I'd been seeing started making more sense. Oh, there's a, there's a whole body that is in the, in the cranial flexion. It's externally rotated. The legs are turned out. The chest is high. The back is short. The cranium is big. And then there are those other people with the narrow heads, the rib cages down, the bowed legs, and they are cranial extension types. I mean, this was a blow mind because it began to tie the, the postural shapes that I've been working with for 10 or 12 years into a physiologic uh, basis that was identifiable. That's tied to rhythmic preferences in the body. Wow. Talk about blow the doors off. And uh, so I took every course Upledger offered for years. At one point, I wanted to be one of his teachers. But for one reason or another, I decided I only wanted to be part of the Rolf Institute and not the Upledger Institute. Uh, had There was some politics in there that I simply didn't want to navigate. So I became a pretty good cranial practitioner. I studied, and it began my study in backtracking all the old osteopathic books. And that was like, wow, what a journey. That was years, years of duration of reading textbooks from osteopaths. Also reading the old chiropractic textbooks. Like, what do those good old people think? And I've always been more interested in their, in their theories than in their techniques. Because if you have an idea, you'll generate technique. But if someone teaches you a technique, it's hard to get, it's hard to go the other way and find out what was the idea that generated this. So I constantly was asking, when I'm reading an author who's describing their system of physical medicine, I'm what are the premises that are behind what's being said? So that's been how I grew by this, by the way I was. And, you know, without going too far, at one point I started to, I, I dove into studying the joints. I wanted to know how the spine worked, how the extremity joints worked. And so I went off, off the deep end, you know. Uh, I was living in New Mexico at the time. And there was no uh, 
formal law against spinal manipulation uh, because the local Spanish legislators had never let the chiropractors come in and put their laws in because they had traditional healers who did a sort of a ritualized bone setting. And so the, the Spanish guys said, no, you can't come here. You'll make our guys illegal with your laws. So I got to work on spines uh, without feeling like I was breaking the law. And, uh, and I don't bring that into Rolfing. Like I never teach how to do quote adjustments, but what, what we learned and Salveson and I worked on this for years was how to do indirect technique on moving bones. You know, if there's a vertebra that's gotten jacked and motion restricted, do you push it toward the strain or do you work directly to try and move it? So we created a, um, a, a manual therapy technology that was consistent with rolfing that didn't violate what were then, you know, the laws around more forceful manipulation. So we got to slip it in and it deepened our understanding of structure. The, um, the techniques that um, I, I've read a book by Jeff Maitland before, and it has a lot of that. Would, would you say, was he influenced by your, by your stuff or was it a separate tangent? He was my student. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave Jeff, I gave Jeff a 10 series when he was a Zen monk at Hamas Zen center. And he would come up and I'd work on him and he'd go, I can't believe this. Like, I feel different. Because <laughs> he's a really, you know, he was a, he was a scholar. He had a PhD in philosophy. He was a monk. He'd been sitting Zen for years. And Rolfing blew his mind. And he decided, I'm going to become a Rolfer. And he came through my classes and eventually became an advanced teacher because he's smart, innovative, had a good, you know, good ability to synthesize information. So, Jan, you're talking a little bit how over the years, how Rolfing has got maybe gotten a little touch of other manual therapies. And then you and I, on a separate conversation, which I thought was pretty interesting, you mentioned that with the training, if we, if some of the instructors get a little too on the other end of the spectrum of maybe off body that there's a risk of losing what, what Rolfing's known for. And I, I hadn't considered that before. And I, I would, if you wouldn't mind, if you could elaborate on that a bit. I want, I don't want to lose what Ida Rolf gave us. And I don't want to lose her original technology either because it's socially inappropriate, like, oh, it hurts, therefore it can't be good. Um, because there was some very potent way that it evoked a change in the body that was phenomenal and that ran all the way through that it was body, psyche, and even openings into what you might call psycho-spiritual uh, changes, you know, uh, numinous states that would occur after being uh, treated, you know, that were like, it's like you're walking in an envelope of light. And uh, these, these tracked the descriptions of altered states, like from Hindu masters, you know, who studied meditation forever and the Tibetans. So it wasn't like these were phenomena that didn't have a, 
place, but that the Rolfing was evoking these phenomena that had been also achieved by other means. So, um, so I've been adamant as like one of the founders that I don't think that we should keep that new technology out. I, I freely admit how deeply I've been influenced by the stuff that I've studied. But when I teach a basic training, I want to teach people that good old Rolfing as the container that this other stuff then fits into. Because if you learn the other stuff first, you never know how to assemble the container. Um, you just, it's almost, you can't retrofit it. Then the, 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 let's say the more vigorous techniques look like they're an add-on as opposed to being the framework. And taking, a, a, you know, 50 people through a 10 series is going to teach you a hell of a lot about the way the body reacts to being touched, about the nature of certain articular, you know, how the arm works, how the wrist is fitted. So your hands get a catalog of experience by working that way. And then when you begin to palpate for more subtle rhythms, you're, you've got a foundation to do it in. So um, I don't know how the other guys say, so to speak, the other, really the constellation of schools that are in Yasi. I don't know how they're handling this. Um, I do know that at, if I looked at, I think there were 11 Yasi schools at one point, And when I looked at their curricula and their descriptions, I thought five of them are right in Rolf's lineage. And these other guys are, pretty loose. Uh, they may be teaching a groovy body work, but it ain't, it ain't what I know. <laughs> and it's not connected to IPR the way my understanding is. And so would I you define um, good old standard rolfing is the basic training of the 10 series with holding in the five principles and the, the quality of touch of being sinking in, finding that movable layer, which the movable layer at times tends to feel intense. Take it where it belongs and ask for movement mm -hmm. uh, and hang on and don't let it go the way it, the, the stressful way that it's patterned in, but rather guide it into a hinge rather than a twisting movement through space. Um, so yes, that's what I define it, but I don't want to train people exactly the way I was trained. I want some of what I've learned to come through because it's been very valuable and important. So I would say that even in a basic Rolfing class, there would be plenty of talk about range of touch, spectrum of touch. But when they do the 10 series, I want to be, I want to see it in the models. These people are ready for a fourth hour. <laughs> Rolf used to line us up. I mean, seven or eight people who were, we were the practitioners, right? We're trading this. We're trading the 10 series. Look at how short everybody is from the perineum to the top of the head. Every single one of these people. And you know, the half that was going to work was looking at the half that was receiving. And then everybody would get a fourth hour. And by God, everybody's neck got longer from working through the inside of the legs. And I saw it over and over and over. And I thought, oh, my 
Jesus, I'm not sure what that mechanism is, but I sure see the effect, you know, and I began to, I'm not a true believer. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm kind of a Thomas sort of character, you know, show me the money. Uh, you can tell me the story, but I'm not going to believe it until I have, you know, smelled it and tasted it. So, um, yes, to answer the question, yes, I think the basic rolfing training should be rolfing training. And then that's the place, then we can take off. Then continuing ed deepens your understanding of structure. The advanced training teaches you client-specific instead of session-specific work. Post-advanced is rock and roll. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk about the history and the quality of touch. And hopefully this can help take away this sensationalize of rolfing being painful and that the pain is not, it's, it's more to that, to, to elicit positive change and not just a painful experience. Yeah, well, you know, it's, you know, one of the hallmarks of maturity in an individual is the ability to make finer and finer distinctions. And this talk about rolfing is painful. Therefore, rolfers are brutes. <laughs> this is a failure of, of being able to make a distinction. Parts of what rolfing does are, you know, challenging to somebody, but it's beneficial. And it's always by agreement. It's not something you're doing on someone. You're doing it with them. And if I'm going to move into territory in someone's body where I know there's either emotional charge, you know, uh, personal history that's that's been held by tension, I negotiate. I go, look, this is going to be a little bit intense when I lean into this. If at any time this doesn't feel right, let me know. I'll get out of here. So ongoing contractual restatement is part of nor a normal part of rolfing. It's not, oh, once in a while I ask someone how they're doing. I don't actually want to know how they're doing. What I want to know is, is it okay if I touch you this way? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I also, I like, you mentioned this earlier, but I heard you talking about it on a week or two years ago's um, webinar, just thinking about it as a, the raw thing as a stressor. And thinking how I heard it was sort of in my mind was thinking like a vaccine or um, where you put a little bit of poison in and that lets the body receives that and then grows from it. You could use that analogy uh, realistically. Rolf said it, an organized stressor. Um, it has the same impact as a blow or a fall, only it's going toward bringing the body into better balance. So it uses the same mechanisms, often the same kind of pressure, although it's slow and steady rather than sudden. But yeah, here's a little bit of the, here's a hair of the dog that bit you. <laughs> and you certainly get people's attention when you touch them that way. They don't go to sleep. And you're, you're, it's, it's, you're aware of it. So as opposed to being hit by something when you're unaware, you're receiving it, but you've got awareness going through it the whole time. Yeah. And, you know, I want to say just a quick thing about Peter Levine's work. 
mm-hmm. because Peter Levine was in that original advanced training that I was in. Uh, he was a student of Rolf's and, and um, he was a very ethereal kind of man. You know, he was small boned, but long and uh, very sensitive, super smart, you know, real, like a university guy. And Rolf basically said, go out there and figure out how the nervous system work and come back and tell us. And uh, so all those years where Levine was developing, he would literally come to Rolfing faculty meetings and give us presentations on, on his next layer of understanding his work. So by the time he published Waking the Dragon, I had heard half of it from his mouth in, in uh, meetings. And we always had a lot of fun together. We were a really happy club of people, you know, studying together. So anyway, I think that Levine's Waking the Dragon. So Waking the Tiger. Waking the Tiger, sorry. Waking the Dragon was a uh, martial arts movie, Bruce Lee. Uh, Waking the Tiger is really a landmark book of psychology because he ties neurosis to restrictions of normal patterns of cycling and integrating experience. So if you get stuck on the wheel and then you, you're not, you don't get closure, then there's a, then you're motion restricted and it's an energetic response. It's very primary. It's very subcortical. And, uh, I just think that he put behavior in psychology in a way that had not been done before. And I don't think he's yet been that. I don't think he's yet been fully recognized in the psychology profession. You know, he's got SE and he's got people training all over the place, but, but those other psychologists and stuff, they have not yet twigged what a revolutionary contribution Levine has made. He's getting there. I mean, I, I, I follow a few psychology things and SE is, is it's, it seems like it's going more that way. Um, well, good, good. Yeah. I don't follow psychology, you know, cause I'm busy studying other things. Yeah. Yeah. There's only so much time in the day. Yeah. yeah. Well, we don't want to take too much more time. I, I see that you're, you're being summoned. Family. <laughs> We're greatly thankful for your time and your wisdom. Uh, and who knows, maybe we can get you on for some more stories and some more knowledge at another time. Well, if you ever want to take another subject and pick it apart, I'd be glad to do it. Um, we don't do. have, I mean, this is sort of the retelling of the Rolfing story. So, <sighs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's helpful. I think it's really helpful for, for a lot of people. Part of the point of this podcast is for Rolfers and bodywork people, but it's also for someone who says, oh, I should get Rolfed. I'm a little scared they hear this talk, it gives them information that they don't have otherwise. So it's, it's really helpful to hear all this. Yeah. Okay, cool. Anyway, you guys, thank you very much. This was fun. And thank you. Think, it worked good. All right. All right. Thanks, Thanks Shan. for inviting Thank you. Me. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. You can find more about Jan at jansultan.com. And more information about the Dr. Ida P. Rolf Institute at rolf.org. Again, we really want to thank Jan for his time and candor, and look forward to more talks in the future with him. Wishing all of you a beautiful day out there, and we'll see you next time.